Thank you, Tristan. Rock of Ages, Cliff, for me, a great old hymn to remind us of our security in Christ. Good to be with you today. Dozens of our folks traveling uh, this weekend, along with the 60 million Americans who all seem to find their way to just south of Greensboro on their way home at the same time, I think. At least that's been our experience. Anyway, it's good to be with you today. And if you have little ones through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church, they can be dismissed at this time. And thank you, teachers, for uh, uh, taking them through and helping them to understand uh, the Word of God. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to the 16th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. 16th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. And I hope today that this is not the first time that you've been in the Word, or even just the second or third, but that you've been in the Word each day. The Lord has designed His Word to be taken in more than our necessary food. And so let me encourage you to do that if you have found yourself kind of just hit and missing, or if you find yourself just kind of opening the Bible and reading wherever your Bible happens to open up, let me encourage you to uh, take our, our trifold. It'll help you take you through the Word in a year and pick up on today's date and use that as your guide to be through the Word cover to cover. Let me encourage you to make that a habit in your regular life. Listen, the Lord works through His Word to hold up the Holy Standard. He works through His Word to show us what uh, what it means for him to act in the lives of men. He still does those same things. It is important for us to know these things, to do them, to be able to show others, to be able to, uh, to throw down every high thing raised against the knowledge of Christ. The only way we can do any of that is to be in the Word every single day. So let me encourage you, make that resolution as we come up to the end of this year. Make that resolution to be in the Word every day. Make that part of your life. You'll see the blessing of that as you grow. Uh, sanctify them, Jesus said, by the truth. What's the rest of it? Your Word is truth, right? So sanctification process is dependent on what? The ingestion of the word. What does it, what does it say? What's it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? So uh, that's an encouraging uh, encouragement to you. You're starving this morning if you haven't been in the word this week. So let me encourage you to take the meal today and let that be the first of a daily meal. We've come again to our last section of this chapter. Uh, we've given it the handhold instructions. And so um, the last section of chapter 16 won't only include instructions, it's going to include uh, special people, it's going to include greetings. Of course, this is all very, very personal. It's likely that maybe you've skipped over some of this stuff because if you look at this and just think, well, you know, these are people that don't exist anymore, this is places that uh, aren't around anymore, maybe this is not that important. But we find the Lord including these as Paul closes out his letters. They have so much, I think, that we can take away uh, from these things that we've seen early on in this chapter. Uh, really a model for New Testament giving, and we've moved on to, to some other very important things about itinerary and the priorities then of what it looks like to do the work of the Lord. Paul says, Timothy's doing that, I'm doing that, and so if they're both doing that, and that's and we see that in the Word of God, and then we see what they're doing becomes that model for us to do those things. And so we get to this last section, of course, and, and has his final blessing at the end of chapter 16, and then he's finished. So let's read our passage for today, beginning in verse 13, if you would. And uh, let's read all the way through the end of the chapter. Paul says this, be on the alert. I'll be reading in the New American Standard. You can find that in the seat in front of you or stay in your copy of God's Word that you read every day. And I'll give you some verse keys. We'll stay together. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Verse 15, now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for the ministry of the saints. Verse 16, that you also be in subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Verse 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, Acacius, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. Verse 18, 
for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. Verse 20, all the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 20, and the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Verse 24, my love be with you, all in Christ Jesus, amen. And so Paul concludes this, this uh, one of, I think, four letters that were actually written to uh, the church in, in Corinth, two of which the Lord has preserved for us, seen fit to preserve for us to study. And so we're going to come to a close here in the next week or two in this marvelous letter and start the next one. Now, we saw last time, our passage really starts with a series of five short, sharp imperatives uh, by way of exhortation. So Paul's giving some commands. So these, uh, there's no wiggle room here. It's not, well, you know, I'd like to do that. I don't see it, or, or maybe I'll do that, or I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. When you see these things in the imperative, we understand that this is what's supposed to be occurring. And so we have certainly seen some in the Corinthian church uh, show a continuing immaturity in a number of things. Those things certainly carry right on into the modern church. And so the instruction that Paul has given us is as relevant today as it was in the first century. So he has a series of compelling requirements to redirect them, if you will, to a better personal testimony, a better corporate testimony, success in ministry, and really a more fruitful final outcome of the faith. And so that's Paul's, that's Paul's desire to see that active in the church and so he takes some time in his closing remarks after all the things we looked at and the intricate things he took, he took on and all the difficulty that he, that he addressed. He comes to this last little section and he gives them some final instructions, which we should weigh, I think, very heavily, considering all that we've taken in. And Paul saves it to, and comes right up to this time and he gives them these five commands. Because if our faith is to be, as we've said this over and over again, if our faith is to be believable, there has to be behavior that flows out of that faith. Okay. Catch that. If our faith is to be believable, there has to be behavior that flows out of that faith. Now look at verse 13 and 14. Let's review for just a moment, and we'll move into our, our next section. Paul says this, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. Now we pointed out that this passage, among some others that we looked at examples last time, really sum up the behavior of a believer. I mean, you can make that case that if you just took these two passages, you could really sum up what it looks like for the behavior of a believer. Now, uh, there are things that we are commanded to find active in our lives because if these five things are present, then they will be actively indicating that you have a relationship with Christ. Remember the first one, Paul says, be on the alert. Present active imperative, Gregor, Gregor Uo, that, that verb, Gregor Uo, present active imperative. In other words, when you read that, understand this is to be the case. That's not a contingency. There's not, if this happens, then do this. This is to be the case. This is to be the reality. It's to be the habit of your life as a command from the Lord. So when you read stuff like that, do this or do not do that, realize most of those things are in imperative, which just means that these are to be accomplished. So as you read through your scriptures on a day-to-day -day basis and you come to those sections of the scripture, you read those and say, okay, do I see this in my life? Uh, if the Lord says to do them, be on the alert. Am I being on the alert? Let's look and see where that verse is found in other parts of Scripture so we can understand it and then begin to incorporate it. And so that's what we should hear in our ears as we're thinking about that. So the reality, it's a command. So what's the principle for life? We saw it last time. Be watchful. Be vigilant in watching. That's the idea. So not just be watchful, but vigilant in watching over your life and conduct. 
Now, there's a great illustration from Matthew 24 and verse 43 of what it looks like to mess this up. And so Jesus uses this as an illustration, and he says, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been, here's, here's, here's our same phrase, on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Now, that could be translated, he would, his eyes would have been open, or he surely would have seen what was happening. And the idea is, and we said this last time, to perceive what we're supposed to perceive. That's the idea of being on the alert. I mean, you can stand and watch, but you might miss the, the exact things that you're supposed to watch for if you're not perceiving what you're supposed to perceive. And so Paul gives the church this instruction. And I think we easily saw from the, uh, the prominence of this type of instruction in the New Testament, which we looked at last time, it would be just foolish and naive to think it wasn't important. Not only from, from a command perspective, knowing that the Lord has given us this command and will then, at the Demacy Judgment, measure our response to it, but certainly also from a practical perspective, because we really don't want to blow it, right? I mean, so think about your life. I mean, you don't want to end up being on the news, right? Like we see lots of guys and gals on the news blowing it, especially recently, right? And it all just kind of comes out. Now, as we think about that, Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says this, be sober of spirit, and that's being self-controlled. So anytime you see sober of spirit, realize it's referring to being self-controlled instead of spirits control, uh, you know, wine, alcohol controlling you. Otherwise, be self-controlled. Be, here it is, on the alert. Why is that, Peter? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so at this point, and, and the next one, we really have, these things really have to do with life management or just management in general. Okay, be watchful. Paul says be vigilant. So these are life habits, long-term life habits. And as you raise children, and my boys can tell you this over and over again, I, I have given them uh, things that I think are important and told them, these are life habits, guys. These are going to help keep you and keep, you, keep your mind straight and keep your path on the right direction. If you incorporate these into your life, it's not legalism, it's just life habit to help you form up a pattern so your steps go the way they should go. And that's, I think we can look at it this way. Be watchful, Paul says, be vigilant in watching because living an unguarded life will undoubtedly ruin your testimony. And I think we saw that last time and certainly in the few illustrations we looked at just now. Uh, living an unguarded life can put you in a place where you severely damage or you ruin your marriage. Living an unguarded state can place you in a position where you ruin your reputation in business or education or whatever it is. And perhaps Paul brings this up because really he's dealing with the church that isn't aware of how vulnerable it is. A lot of people very prideful in this church, very uh, self-sufficient, uh, believing they knew what they needed to know and, and, of course, putting Paul down constantly. And, and just like our children who are never in more danger than when they are unaware of the danger that they're in, that's, I think that's the exact emphasis that there needs to be this awareness that you may not be aware of every obstacle and every trick of the evil one and every crafty thing that men and women who don't know the Lord do, and your own flesh, which is so deceptive. And so there's a watchfulness that is commanded by the Lord, a diligent watchfulness. And so you commit to letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, as we see in Colossians 3.16, and which is, is given to fully equip us to do all those types of things. See, And that leads us to Paul's next command. and that's So Paul says, be on the alert, and then he says, stand firm in the faith. So number two, and we saw this last time, again, present active imperative of the word stako. So it is to be the case, again, when you read commands like this, understand there isn't a contingency. This is the reality. This is supposed to be the habit of your life as a command from the Lord. And it is to be fixed 
in a spot, unable to be moved. And then these three words in the English modify that command for us. And those words are stand firm, and then here it is, in the faith. So it modifies that force to help us understand where we're to stand firm. We're not supposed to be just belligerent. We're not supposed to be just bullheaded about some certain thing that we've picked out. We're supposed to be standing firm in the faith. And again, what does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply to you? That begins to be the objective as you read the word of God. How do I know what I'm supposed to stand firm in? Well, the word of God is very clear. And again, you know, uh, the culture and men and women and, and the devil are just very insidious. And, you know, they may not require you to renounce Jesus. They may just ask you to add a bunch of things, a bunch of stuff to the okay behavior list or the no big deal behavior list, see? And just like they did in first century Corinth. And, and so that Paul, you know, in that, Paul seems to, uh, you know, from this letter, he, he comes on and he says, you know, be on the alert and then stand firm in the faith. Don't waver about the things the Lord says are firm. Okay, if that's his will, and he's given to you his will and told you what his plan is for marriage or for singleness or for uh, the culture or for, you know, leaders or fathers or mothers or whatever it is, understand that's his will. That's where you stand firm. And you say, okay, I'm not adding things to this. I'm not redefining this. You know, I, I, just uh, about a week ago, I traveled to um, Asheville, South, uh, North Carolina to do a wedding for a family that we've known for years and years. Uh, their youngest daughter got married. And, and so I took some time to talk about this what was god's plan for marriage and who defined it and who made it and we I took some time to encourage the audience listen in a culture that constantly bombards that definition and has really hijacked the word and given it to a whole bunch of things the lord just defines as sin instead we have to stand firm and say okay this is what it means and this we don't waver about this you may have some of these other relationships that people may call this but it isn't this okay and we don't accept that as what the lord has defined see that's the kind of thing we're talking about be on alert, stand from the faith. The Philippians 1.27, a great illustration of this. Here's what Paul says. Only, so only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in your conduct, make sure it reflects the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, Paul says, I will hear of you and that you are, here it is, standing firm. And again, these are parallel passages that really refer to the same thing. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, because there'll be many. Which is a sign of destruction for them. So as you're standing firm in what the Lord has said on his word, and people oppose you, that's a sign of what? It may to, initially, it may be a sign of intimidation to you, right? You may be, be uncertain about perhaps what you should say or maybe where you should stand. But understand that when you fix yourself firmly on what the Word of God says, there will be opponents. That's a sign, Scripture says, of destruction for them. The Lord's not going to be real flexible and say, well, I know you, you held a different belief what, about what marriage, uh, how marriage was defined. And I know you held a different belief about how you got saved and whatever, but it's going to be fine. In opposition to what the Word of God has clearly revealed, reveals destruction for that person Un, in an unredeemed uh, state in an un, where that that relationship with the lord is not repaired by christ that's a sign of destruction see but salvation for you and that too is from god and again he just kind of sums it up philippians 4 1 therefore my beloved brethren whom i long to see my joy and crown in this way again just a parallel passage stand firm in the lord my beloved again parallel ways of saying the command stand firm in the lord stand firm in the faith Stand firm in one spirit, stand firm in one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Galatians 5.1, another marvelous place. 
that illustrates this. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Stand firm. You were released in Christ from the bondage and the yoke of sin. Don't get bound up in it again. Stand firm. Use the word of God. It holds up the holy standard. It tells you exactly what God expects. And we submit to that because we are his and we, it's our joy to do that. Remember, as, as Daniel reminded us very, very appropriately, I think, and timely last week, you know, Ephesians 6, 11 through 18, our veteran uh, spoke to us on Veterans Day about the armor of Christ. How appropriate was that? But here's the thing. You know, three times in that passage where he spoke to us, it says stand firm. A fourth time it's implied. He, he says stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He says, um, uh, having done all, having done everything, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Stand firm so that you'll be able, again, this is implied, to resist, to resist the evil day. And then he gets all the way down to the end. In verse 18, it says, be on the alert with all perseverance. And so two, two commands Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 16 at the end of the letter. Uh, he also told uh, the, the church in Ephesus, do these same things. Stand firm in the faith. Be on the alert. See, these are uh, constantly resonating commands as we've seen in these illustrations. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, here it is, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Listen, the word of God has given us the fixed standard by which we are to stand. And it becomes a very easy thing then to discern what that is and then be firm. Stand firm. Hold those traditions. And there are always going to be opponents as long as we live here. And whatever culture we live in, there will be opponents to what the word of God says. And, and the world is always whispering to us, bow down, it's no big deal. Don't worry about those specific points. I mean, Christianity is so, you know, it must be so, uh, it creates so much friction, right? How many get annoyed, annoyed when you see the sticker on the back of the car that says, coexist? That annoys the living daylights out of me. Because there are a whole bunch of false religions in there who have no, they have no desire whatsoever of coexisting with anybody. In fact, they're considered holy if they don't coexist with you. And then they have, of course, Christianity there as if somehow true Christianity is part of the problem. A sign of destruction for them, a sign of salvation for you, see. The more you follow Christ, the more you're going to love, the more you're going to give the gospel out, the more you're going to help people understand their need, right, and humility. So, brethren, stand firm, hold to the traditions that we've given you. Be on the alert. And, and there, there are some things that sum up what it means to be a believer, and two of them are be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. Now look at this next, look at the next three. Look at your copy of God's word, verse 13. Act like men, be strong, let all you be done, do be done in love. Now, that's interesting um, as we get to that little, that third one, act like men. I want to pause right there because I think in an age where the egalitarian push is stronger than it's ever been. In other words, that everybody can do everything, right? There's no differentiation between men and women. Everybody can do what they want. Everybody can do whatever they think they can do. See? I believe even stronger than the feminine pres feminism present in the Roman Empire, which was pretty strong. I think we've exceeded that in today's day. And in an age where male misconduct is seemingly reported on an hour-by-hour -hour basis, and our most prevalent topic, of course, for our media is Judge Roy Moore, and I think it's interesting, and probably you thought of this too, that uh, most of the people in Washington who are yelling the loudest about Moore's, what they perceive to be Moore's behavior 
will also be shown to be guilty of the same things. It's kind of happening overnight, isn't it? People get on there and do a press conference and we find out that there are 17 women that are talking about that person. It's just hypocritical and, and uh, so disingenuous. But, you know, all of that being said, it's, both of those things are very sad. Not, not only male misconduct, but then the people who are pointing the fingers also showing to be uh, just very bad in their conduct. And it, it may sound, just be honest, it may sound improper to our ears to hear the admonition, act like men, right? Because the way our culture's men act doesn't appear to be the way we would want to act. And in fact, I think it's unclear what it means to be a man in a socially acceptable way. Wouldn't you agree, men? Particularly because modern sitcoms and advertising typically portray men in a very negative and a demeaning light. In some of the things that they uh, would do on a normal basis, it's just kind of portrayed in a very negative way. But the three English words are really one Greek verb, andridzomi, present, middle, imperative. Now again, present and imperative indicate it is to be the, act, it is to be the active uh, indication in our lives that we're doing this. Middle means that the subject is participating in it. So we're told, act like men. So the word itself is the word for courageous. It's to be brave. In fact, you may have that in some of your translations. In a, in a biblical worldview that is synonymous with acting manly is to be courageous, is to be brave. And the Bible has no problems indicating what it is to be, to be synonymous with being a male. It has no problem just saying, act like a man. And then it defines what that looks like. And part of that is to be brave, it's to be courageous, it's to be bold, it's to be valiant. And those, and be honest, I mean, those are words, even those words that our culture tends to look down on. A bravery, a, a valiancy, a boldness. But the Bible uses it to axiomatically describe men. That's what they're supposed to be like, especially when applied to our Christian walk, which is self-evident, evidence, if you will, of faith. So, and these next two, as we looked before, uh, those first two had to do with management. These two really have to do with, if you will, maturity. Maturity. Because as you think about the word, we don't automatically think about children as needing to be brave and courageous, right? I mean, they're, they get to be children. They will eventually learn how to be brave and courageous. But we think about children, we think about uh, those who are immature, right? And Paul even talked to immature people in the Corinthian church. He says this, he said, And I, brethren, couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to what? Infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able. He says you're arguing with each other and, and taking sides about stuff, and he says you're just immature. So does, you know, Paul, when Paul says, listen, act like men, he's calling them to attention because he just got through saying in just a few chapters previously that they're not acting like men, that they're acting like kids. So in the physical realm, we don't expect children to be brave and courageous. So Paul says, act like men. You know, especially our male children, they have to learn to be that way. It has to be modeled. This is what you're supposed to do as a man, regardless of what the culture says you, sh you should or shouldn't do, or whether they want you to tone it down a little bit. They need to be taught to react that way. You know, I love to read books about World War II. A number of my relatives uh, fought, my grandfather Marine on Iwo Jima. And, but I've recently been reading about the 101st Airborne. And, and their drop in, in Normandy all the way through Bastogne, all the way, uh, Battle of the Bulge into Germany. And 
a lot of those guys uh, in some of these documentaries, and, and particularly in Steve Ambrose's book, were interviewed before they passed about how they did what they did, because many of the acts of bravery that we hear about and we, and we see, uh, some of the most decorated of guys that have been in the Army and the Marine Corps, these guys um, all had some things in common. They were very brave. At least it, it appeared that they were, they were very brave and very courageous. But as the men were interviewed and asked how they could accomplish so many heroic things, how could they run into a hail of bullets in Bastogne? How could they kind of trench in and wade in the Battle of the Bulge, cuts them off from any retreat in any hospital uh, or any kind of re-ammunition or any supplies? And they're there, they just stick through it and all, constant shelling and all that kind of stuff and just doing their job. Most of the men said this, listen, you know, a lot of people think that we were just brave and there was no fear. He goes, no, we, we had fear, but we were trained in what we had to do. A lot of the guys, they just said this across the board in, in different words, but they said it the same way. We were taught what to do. We had a job to do. Our NCOs gave us what we had to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so we just incorporated that job and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. And that helped us handle the fear, perhaps, that was there about running into a hail of bullets or shelling or whatever it was, taking a town held by the Germans. We just did our job, and that helped us take care of the fear. We did what we were supposed to do and what we were taught to do. And that worked out, see, in the appearance of bravery. And it really was bravery, wasn't it? Just doing the job. Standing firm. Their actions, and, and a lot of their actions, and some of the things that occurred, you know, in D plus one, D plus two, and, and places that were taken, become, they became the standard for what it looked like to acquit yourselves as a man. They became the standard that begin, it's still being taught today in some of our military uh, academies about how to take a fortified position or how to take a town or a place that's held. And it's just amazing that these guys became this gold standard for what it looked like to do that. And of course it was bravery and it was uh, valor and it was courageousness. And it's, it's synonymous, Paul says, with what it means to be a man. And that appears to be what Paul's calling for here. And this is principle number three, and you can find this in your notes. There's supposed to be, beloved, there's supposed to be a manliness an unflinching courage that indicates that we have a relationship with Christ. There's supposed to be that. A boldness. And, and there are certainly, you know, and the Lord is, of course, uh, kind of associates around uh, a male headship, but th there are certainly many times when women must be brave and courageous and valiant, and they are certainly unquestionably capable of those responses. But understand, Paul's command here refers to those traits as synonymous with being a mature man of God. And so then it becomes this application to every believer. But the illustration is, this is what a man looks like. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, really gives us a rounded understanding of this maturity. Uh, Paul says this to the church in Ephesus, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, and as a result, verse 14, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness, in deceitful scheming. So, as Paul sums that up, he says, evangelists, pastor, teachers are placed in the church. Why? Preparing the saints for works of service. Building up the body of of Jesus, the physical body on earth, the church. And that teaching, see, as it's put into practice, unifies the body. So evangelists, pastors, teachers are to increase the knowledge of Jesus by teaching what the word of God says, and they desire to produce, catch this, a mature man. And we understand what a mature man is. That's not a child 
So, in other words, as you teach the Word of God in the church, you're producing not Christian waifs, okay, who are carried around by every single thing that comes up, right? A mature man isn't shaken. A mature man isn't tossed around. You know, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, equip yourself as men. A mature man isn't just kind of blown around by whatever happens, see? If, as a pastor and teacher brings the Word of God, and it says, this is what you're to be like, a mature man incorporates that into his life, and that becomes that standard by which he lives, and part of that is to be courageous and bold. And part of that is to be on the alert. Now let's move on to Paul's next command. Verse 13, be strong, Paul says. Be strong. Present passive imperative. Kratagyuo. And the passive voice, you understand this, we say this all the time, has to do with something acting on the subject. So we're told to be strong, but in the passive we understand that something's going to act on us. See? And again, this has to do with maturity. And principle number four, you'll find this in your notes. The believer is commanded by the Holy Spirit to be in a position that allows the Lord to produce strength in them. We're going to look at that in just a minute. The strength is part of the summary of what it means to be a believer. And of course, the question as soon as we read that, when it says be strong, the question is how do I do that? How, how do I be strong? Right? Well, let's illustrate it. Psalm 31, 24. And it really gives us this passive understanding of being strong. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Who? All you who, what's it say? Hope in the Lord. Why? Because his will isn't thwarted. You push your hope in the Lord. He's omnipotent. He is the almighty, all-powerful, supreme controller of the created cosmos. So be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who hope in that person. And by virtue of your hope in him, you are strengthened and encouraged. You know, Deuteronomy 31, 6, God told Moses as he's inheriting the land God has given Israel, he says in verse 6, be strong and courageous, don't be afraid or tremble at them. Why? For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. In other words, this battle was never yours to begin with. Moses, you're mine, and when that's true, you get me to go with you. Joshua 1.9, God told Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. So Joshua is inheriting the mantle of Moses. He's moving forward and conquering the rest of the land. Do not tremble or be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's implied that if you have the creator of, the, uh, of all the created cosmos, the all-powerful supreme controller of everything, and your hope is in him, then he goes with you, see? And it's not even, I hope he goes with me. If your hope is in him, then the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The strength of those who are part of Christ's kingdom isn't something native and inherent to them. It's derived from the Lord, see? The Lord strengthened those who were his in Israel. Psalm 121, verse 1. It's one of my favorite psalms. I will lift up my eyes to the hills or mountains. From where shall my help come? Where will it come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Isn't that great? It always says something about that. So I get help from the person who made the heavens and the earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He'll keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. See? And the thread through all of this, beloved, and all these passages, the courage is derived here, strength is derived here. Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord, be strong in the strength of his might. The Lord strengthens those who are in Christ. He equips us, as we saw last week, to do the work that he has for us to do. See, And Job's confession to God in Job 4, 1 and 2, Job answers the Lord after he sees the Lord at work. The Lord's doing this, proving this heavenly point by taking the things that Job has valued and the things that he's blessed Job with all away. But he's proven a heavenly point. Job knows nothing about the heavenly point. He just knows that his life has gone from great to really bad. And the Lord uh, makes it clear to him that he didn't understand what was going on. And he just, and the Lord, Job answers the Lord when he finally realizes he's been part of a heavenly point. He's been part of a greater picture. And he is this part of this picture the Lord's using. He didn't see fit to tell Job, hey, I'm about to really test you. Just say, check out Job. He can do it. And Job answers it to the Lord and says, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's really great, isn't it? Because the reverse of that is, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours will be thwarted. And because you're with me, that is my strength, see? And Philippians 4.13 says that. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, see? Paul is speaking here of bearing up in difficult times. So the topic is, I know how to abound, I know how to abase. Uh, treating them both the same way, see? And he can be content with either because God has granted the strength for both of them. He's the almighty, all-powerful, supreme controller of the created cosmos. And by virtue of your hope in him, you're strengthened and encouraged. That's why it's passive. Be strong. You have to be in a position where then the Lord can be strong for you. And you may be saying to yourself right now, you know, I don't feel that strong. Maybe you've gone through some hard times this year. Maybe it's been really difficult for you. Maybe you look around and you're thinking about all the things life may throw at you this next year after the year you've just had and you don't feel that prepared. Well, then I would say that 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 should encourage you. Here's what Paul says. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. So when you're not feeling too strong, you're in a great place, aren't you? Because it wasn't your strength to begin with. It was a passive sense that be strong. You're going to have to be in a position where the Lord can strengthen you. Most gladly, therefore, can you say this with Paul? Most gladly, therefore, I'll boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. It seems the opposite is what we do. But Paul says, I I'm okay. I Most gladly, therefore. So that the power of Christ can dwell in me. Why? Because that's omnipotent power. That's power sufficient to the task, see? That's strength sufficient for the difficulty that will be ahead. Therefore, I'm well content. Can you say that? I'm well content with weakness, insults, distress, and persecution and difficulty. Are you well content with that? That's hard. As I read that today, uh, this week and I was going to give that to you, I just thought, man, am I well content with distresses and insults? Not typically. I guess I have a long ways to go too. Am I well content with weaknesses and persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake? Not in my own self. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Have we understood that dichotomy yet? I mean, that's where strength comes from. If you want to obey this command, you're going to have to get to a position where you're not relying on your own. Now, no doubt, I just got through reading that, and you know that I'm in this group sometimes, just like you are. There are here this morning, just like the day the Corinthian church opened up Paul's letter that Timothy brought to them and read it to everybody, there were people who were anything but alert about the pitfalls around them and the roaring lion roaming and desiring to devour them in their sin. They were anything but alert. And they were doing everything but paying attention. I mean, it's almost like they invited every possible, every possible vice, if you will, into their life as you read through the book. It's like, is there anything that they're not doing that the world offers? And there were people in that church, undoubtedly, as that letter was open, they were doing anything but standing firm. Instead, they're wobbling around from every rumor and everything and every temptation, easily blown around from one wave to another wave, waifs for Christ. Not able to stand firm in the midst of a whole bunch of rumors and difficulties and whatever. Undoubtedly, they were there. Undoubtedly, they were anything but courageous there when they opened the letter. They were fearful and easily discouraged and easily fooled and easily intimidated by the world, tossed about from one trouble to another until really it was all they could see. It's just trouble after trouble, see? And in your heart of hearts, beloved, I would say this. If one or more of those definitions describes you that we just said just now, anything but alert, anything but standing firm, anything but courageous. Do you remember the Lord's words from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah 40, verse 28? This is for you, okay? Do you not know and have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? I love the titles. It sets him up as a great supplier of the strength, right? Again, we just see this over and over in the scriptures. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who's the maker of heaven and earth, right? Don't you know the creator of the ends of the earth doesn't become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. In other words, as you look at everything he knows, there's no way you're going to pick out something that is faulty. He understands everything. Every detail of your life, all of this last year that you, whatever went through, whatever you allowed in your life, the things you did when no one was around, all the stuff that you've piled up and you've taken on weight or whatever it was, or you moved forward in your walk with the Lord or whatever, he understands it. His understanding is inscrutable. He doesn't get tired going through record after record after record. He understands all of that, okay? He gives strength to the weary. So he has this resource where he can give strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youth grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, those are the opposites of what we expect, right? We don't expect youth to grow tired, but they do, and young men stumble badly. Yet those who, what? Wait for the Lord will gain new strength, They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. And they'll walk and not become weary. Can you thank him for that for a moment in your mind this morning? 
That's what you do when you read the Word of God. When you read something like that, you pause. Thank you for that. That's a resource that's available to you. If that described you, anything but alert, anything but standing firm, anything but strong, anything but courageous, you know, you allowed a bunch of stuff in your life and all this stuff is kind of taken over. You've had a difficult year and you don't know what the next year is going to bring and you're feeling a little uncertain. Did you know this? This is for you. See, just like it was for Isaiah, it still applies to you. And you know this, don't you? And waiting for the Lord and waiting on the Lord is putting your hope in him, okay? So it's not like some ethereal thing you can't really grab a hold of, you know, there's no handholds, it's just kind of clouds floating around. You know, you're putting your hope in him. You put your trust and your expectation and your priority to doing his will. That's waiting for the Lord. Expecting him to save, longing for his promises to be fulfilled. That's waiting for the Lord. Praying according to his will. As you conform your prayer to a biblical prayer, did you know it's going to pray? You're going to be praying according to what the Lord has revealed already. This is going to happen. That's going to make your way into your prayer. See, That's waiting for the Lord. Letting the word dwell in you with all wisdom. Did you know what? That's waiting for the Lord. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does it apply to me? And then doing that thing or not doing that thing. Did you know that's waiting for the Lord? That's the expectation that he's going to come. That's knowing the master will call us to accountability someday. Knowing he's redeemed us and perfected us and looks at us as pure and has given us a raiment of white. And he says, because of Christ's finished work on the cross, you will be with me in glory forever. Though my flesh perish, what did Job say? Yet I will see the Lord. That's putting your hope in the Lord, see? Or any of those things, or a combination of them. You want to change that trajectory? Because that's what Paul's about, see? A better overall outcome for your personal testimony, a better overall outcome for the corporate testimony of the church, a better all final outcome in the fruit of your life. That changes the direction. Wait for the Lord, you'll have the strength you need. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae in Colossians 1.9, he says this, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask you, Ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul says, we're praying for you, and this is what we want. We want you to be filled with knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and all understanding. You pray for your little group that you pastor or that you, you oversee. Can you pray for them that way? That's praying according to God's will, did you know? And when Paul prays for the church, you can pray for the people that you minister to just the same way. This is the passage that's on my computer right now. I pray for you. And I've switched them out over the years, different ones that... that this is what I want to see for you. It's what I see, want to see for me. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. See, if you have, if you're filled with that knowledge of his will, because you're in the word, and you understand what he says, in all spiritual wisdom, you're applying those things as you should in all understanding, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now mark this, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and all patience. Isn't that great? There's that, there's that word again, strengthened with all power. Where does the power come from? From the Lord who made heaven and earth, see? The creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't become weary or tired. His grace is sufficient for us, and we can rejoice even in our weaknesses because when we're weak, then we're strong. So waiting for the Lord is what? Placing ourselves in a position where we put our hope in him, trust with our expectation and our priority to do his will, expecting him to save, longing for his promises to be fulfilled. See, these are ways you wait on the Lord. You indicate by your volition that you believe exactly what the Lord says, see? He's the one who's the source of all power. And according to our passage, he'll produce it in you when you wait. So maybe you need steadfastness. Maybe you need patience. You know, well, you're going to have to put aside your agenda and the way you've always managed things if you want the Lord to place in you real power. Okay? 
and your, your initial response, whatever that is, to difficulties, and your initial response to personal weaknesses and, and physical feelings or other people who are giving you a hard time, whatever your, per, your original response is, that's going to have to be put aside, and you're going to have to say, okay, I'd rather rejoice in insults. I'd rather rejoice in persecution. I want to rejoice in weaknesses and distresses. I'm okay with that. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I put my hope in the Lord. And then he can manage those things and place in you real power. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Here's 14. Let all that you do be done in love. This is the last one. And you can find this in your, in your notes and we can copy this down if you'd like. And I would propose to you that some, I catch this, beloved, okay? Because, again, as in the definition of a man is skewed in the culture, the definition of love is skewed in the culture too. And I'm not talking about sexual love, but I'm talking about you know, relationship between you and your wife or, or whatever, okay? I'm talking about the definition in general or the impression of what love looks like. And I would say to you that in our culture, or maybe even in our church, the definition they would give of love itself would cancel out verse 13 of being on the alert and standing firm in the faith and acting like men and being strong. And all the things that have to come with those things that the definition of love from the culture perhaps would cancel out verse 13, that you couldn't do any of those things and also be loving as the scripture would, would uh, propose it. Because there's no way that you could be alert, there's no way you could be firm, no way you could act like men, there's no way you could be strong and also be loving. And yet here we have the Apostle Paul throw that idea on its ear. And so we had life management and then we had maturity and now really we have motivation, I think, for what we do. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. And this is a popular topic with Paul. Of course, it wasn't his idea. Um, it's based on the commandment from Jesus in John 13, 34. Jesus says, a new commandment. So pay attention. It's one you hadn't had before, but make sure you, you mark this down. Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So just kind of confirms it. Be clear. I want you to love like I've loved you. Then that's the love I'm talking about, Okay. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you go to Sunday school and church. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you make sure you make the midweek Bible study. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you're a deacon or you serve as an elder or you serve in a ministry somewhere. No. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 1 Peter 4.8 says that it covers the faults of others. Hebrews 6.10 says that it ministers to the needs. Catch it? 1 Peter 4, 8. It covers the faults of others. We think love is exposing the faults of others, don't we? Sometimes. But it covers the faults of others. Hebrews 6, 10. It ministers to the needs of other people. See, love is a verb in the scriptures. It acts. It's not sentiment. Colossians 3, 13. It forgives injuries. It doesn't hold on to them. It doesn't have to chase down everyone. Okay? You have two choices. I've said this before many times. You have two choices in the scripture when somebody offends you. You can chase it down and, and approach them and broach the topic with them and tell them you've been offended and hope that they'll say they're sorry. Or you can forgive them and not hold on to it. Because when you do the first one and they don't say they're sorry, you still have to do the second one. Did you know that? So just skip over the first one. And that's exactly what... That's exactly what uh, Colossians 3.13 says. Colossians 3.14 says we're supposed to put it on like a garment. 1 Corinthians 14.1, we're supposed to follow hard after it. 
Believers are supposed to abound in it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Continue in it. In Hebrews 13, 1. Be sincere and provoke one another to it. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. It's supposed to be exhibited towards fellow saints. 1 Peter 2, 17. To ministers. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13. To our families. Ephesians 5, 25. Strangers. Romans 12, 13. Enemies. Romans 12, 14 and 20. And all men. Galatians 6, 10. Warren Wisby says this, and I've said this to you before, I love this quote. Quote, love is the lubrication between believers as we work together, end quote. That's a great thought, isn't it? Just think about that. You, I love engines and working on things. You understand the importance of all of that, right? So catch this, all right? Let's just make this real. In the course of ministry, there is opportunity for friction. There's opportunity for different personalities and different gifts and different ministries and different outcomes and misunderstandings and offenses taken and offenses given and immaturity and carnality and authority and submission and all that stuff and love, Wiersbe says, is the lubricant in all of that. All those gears are supposed to be meshing together, all those things we're supposed to be doing, all the different kinds of gifts and how they work out and all the carnality and the, a bad week and a bad day and whatever and life habits and whatever it is, see, perceptions and expectations and, and you know preferences and all those things are all at work in the church right the most diverse group on the face of the planet people are sitting here you would never be friends with if they weren't believers and because they're believers not only do you have to be friends with them you have to love them see and so love is that is that lubrication between all that stuff that's going on see and it, it's a you know paul calls it the most excellent way in first corinthians 12 31 and following that statement then in 1 Corinthians 13, he pens the most exhaustive passage in all of the Bible on it. So that there's no misunderstanding about what it looks like. And from that wonderful passage, what the Holy Spirit desired most of all is for us to learn the preeminent place of the spiritual fruit of love. Because it's the first one listed, isn't it? Fruit of the Spirit is, first one, love. In everything that goes on in the church. And it's not defined by you. It's defined by the scripture. It covers the faults, it ministers the needs, it forgives injuries, it's, you're supposed to put it on. You know, all this kind of stuff, see? And Paul is reminding them, see, in that wonderful passage, that this is the, this is the preeminent place of the spiritual fruit of love in everything that goes on. And Paul reminds them here in his five commands to them at the end of this letter that we don't study and learn these things in a vacuum, see? Those four at the beginning are not in a vacuum. And, and I would guess that, and beloved, as I say this all the time to you, I would guess that it would seem to be obvious that a believer's desire would be to live what we learn, right? And whatever it is that we do for the kingdom, our desire would be that what we do best is our living, right? As we interact with one another. Not some certain project that you accomplished or whatever it is in your past, but our daily living, see? Because as we've said many times, if our faith is to be believable, there has to be behavior that flows out of our faith, out of darkness and into light, doesn't just describe the spiritual nature, it describes the actions too, see? And the fruit of the Spirit really is the indicator. This fruit is the indicator of spirituality. And it's really very simple and very easy to understand. And, and the way love works and how it acts are really disciplines. Did you know that? They're really disciplines. They are not a natural reaction. Did you know covering the faults of someone else is not a natural reaction? Now, of course you knew that, okay? The most juicy phone calls you get are the opposite of that. 
And to do those disciplines takes work to change the way we've always responded. And we desire to see these things evident in our lives. And when they are visible, they're evidence of the Spirit's control. That's just how it is. Because they bring personal will, personal desire, emotions and impulses and speech under divine priority. Don't they? Love brings personal personal will and personal desire and emotion and impulses and speech under divine control. Love does that, see? They direct the subordinating of our desires and our impulses and our emotions and our speech. They, sub, they subdue that, see, and bring that under divine control. And we want as followers of Christ to move past shallowness, superficiality, Christianity as it's done now. And the study of 1 Corinthians 13 is the reminder there are places that can lead us from an undisciplined life to one where we're useful for the master's work, see? And 1 Corinthians 16 is another place that reminds us of that. And one of the great joys of this study is to see these things in your life, see? Because they're not the kinds of things that unbelievers do, see? And as we said several times, only people who have incorporated the first spiritual gift of love can actually accomplish anything for the kingdom or build anything that will last at the beam of seat judgment. And I think we saw that very clearly, didn't we, as we looked at earlier chapters in 1 Corinthians. I mean, you may have this huge thing that you've built, but, you know, the Lord knows what the motivation was. And it might not last that first fire that he's going to test it with. Salvation isn't just some emotional activity that happened sometime in the past. You know, you know how the, you really know that you're saved? Your activity. See? In other words, the salvation that's inside you is that work through your obedience to the commands of Scripture, which you are incorporating into your life on a daily basis. And that makes it visible on the outside of you. See? Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Love. So look at your life and see if it's there. The actions of love should be showing up in how you act. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 13 says, love is patient. Love is kind. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. And all means all, and that's all all means, right? It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And beloved, equally, what love doesn't do shouldn't be there. Love isn't jealous. Love doesn't brag. Love isn't arrogant. Love doesn't act in an unbecoming manner. Love doesn't seek its own. It isn't easily provoked. It doesn't hold on to a wrong suffered. Love doesn't do that. It doesn't hold on to it. Love does not rejoice in the righteousness. So as a believer, see, it's very straightforward. It's subjective. If you are able to rightly evaluate yourself, you may not see everything there that you'd like to see there, but there certainly should be some of those attributes of love there, and you're continually disciplining yourself so that you see more of those, see, because they are not the first reaction. So when Paul says, gives this last command, he says, let all that you, be, you do be done in love, he just takes in this big swath that he's already covered, see? He's just kind of uh, reminding us of Jesus' direct command. Here's a new command I'm going to give to you. See, so he just takes in this big swath. And, you know, as we were studying 1 Corinthians 8, 1, you know, and the freedom of Christ concerning idols, Paul says this, we know, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, see? And so if, if speaking the truth, catch this, okay? If speaking the truth in love helps us to love correctly, okay, so love is connected with truth. See, that's why I say that, Chapter, verse 14, doesn't, uh, isn't over and opposed to verse 13. 
Because you have to be strong and you have to be, you know, alert and you have to stand firm in the faith and all, those, and all difficult kinds of things and all the things that go on in the church and, you know, authority and submission and all the things that happen, see? And all kinds of different spiritual gifts and, and all these things working together, different outcomes and all that kind of stuff, see? Those all, that's all going to be in the mix, see? We have that knowledge and, and, and love, you know, we speak the truth in love and love is rightly headed. So we understand what love actually looks like. Not some uh, watered-down version of some perception we have of love that doesn't ever say anything to anybody, ever do anything to anybody, or whatever, okay? So if truth keeps us rightly headed in love, then love helps our speaking to be rightly motivated. Get it? So truth keeps us lo uh, loving in the correct direction, and then love keeps our speaking correctly motivated, because you still have to do the things you have to do, see? So principle number five... The command to love permeates every other command. See, and it's just very simple like that, and I know that you know this because we went through 1 Corinthians 13 together. Now, I want to illustrate that for a minute, and we're going to close with this. Okay, now my wife's in here, and I was going to use her as an illustration. And usually that's a big no-no, okay? Over 25 years, I've learned not to use my wife as an illustration. But this one's a good one, okay? At least it's not bad. I'll just say that, okay? You know... Have you ever noticed, have you ever done this? Have you ever gone to a restaurant and ordered a salad and asked for the dressing on the side? Now listen, I didn't know you could do that until I met my wife, okay? I mean, I was just like one of those gullible people who just, yeah, I want the salad and, you know, it came with the, the dressing on it and I just thought that's how it came. And then I, you know, went out with her a few times and I realized, hey, you could order on the side. And that's, you know, that's pretty cool, especially if it's ranch, right? Because, I mean, ranch is like a whole nother side by itself. You can, like, dip everything in ranch. You know, deep-fried okra, whatever it is, just goes into ranch and in your mouth, it's all better, right? So I was like, wow, it's great, you know? You know, <laughs> you're getting the dipping sauce for everything. But here's the thing. When it comes, and here's, here's why I said that. When it comes to love, it can never be on the side. Okay? It isn't just one of the things that you order. It's like garlic and Italian food, right, Bill? I mean, you start with it, and it permeates everything. You know, these five commands really take in management, they take in maturity, and they take in motivation. And they could really sum up the behavior of a believer, right? It, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. It's, it's not on the side, it's mixed in. It's integral to the whole recipe, okay? Now, I say all that to you because I know that you know this. So, 2 Peter 1.10 helps you know kind of where I stand as a pastor for you. Okay? Peter says this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, now Paul, or Peter gave a whole list of things that add to your faith knowledge and knowledge, self-control and all that kind of stuff. So, but it just applies. See, wh whenever you remind the church, whenever you encourage the church to be diligent about following the Lord's commands to them, see, you just remind them, you call to mind again, practice these things. If you practice these things, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you be done in love. You will never stumble, see. For in this way, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. It's not that you've lost your salvation. It's not that you, there's no way you're going to find your way into your final reward. It's just it doesn't seem that clear. You've lost sight of it. You know, like when you're hiking and you know where you're headed, but you get down in a deep valley and you're like, turned around a little bit, you know? 
used to hunt out west, and we would go, we'd, we'd four-wheel drive in, and then we'd hunt way into the mountains. Sometimes you're a little turned around because you, you don't remember exactly where the camp is, right? You've been not paying attention to your surroundings, and you've got to use some of your reasoning to figure out how do I get back to the general idea, uh, general location where I'm going to be. The idea there is this, see, you know, if these things are yours and you practice these things, you're not going to stumble. And the way to the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, and here's my, here's my perspective, I will be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present in you. That's, that's the reason why we go through this, why we spend time on these five commands. I mean, we're talking two verses in two weeks. Even for me, that's slow. But the way to the eternal kingdom, that entrance, abundantly supplied to you, I know you know them. Practice them more. You've already been established in this truth. Do it more. Evaluate where you are in your heart of hearts. What are your first reactions? Does love find its way, working its way out in you? See? That's my prayer for you. Let's bow and be dismissed. Father, we thank you for our opportunity to be together today. We thank you for this week, which holds so much fun and promise of fellowship and enjoyment and, and uh, breaking bread together and just the satisfaction that comes from that. We learned that from you, Father. It, the feast days, the... Uh, the time around the table, the fellowship dinners in the New Testament, feast days in the Old Testament, you know, these are things that you desire. You desire fellowship. You, you use food to do it. We're excited about it. We, we enjoy our time together. We enjoy the relaxation even for a day that, it, that that brings. But as we move there, Father, we have abundant opportunity to act in this, the ways that you've instructed us to. And Lord, I pray, this, this is my prayer for me and for our congregation, that we not be lax by way of watchfulness of our lives and our doctrine. Help us not to be lax. Instead, help us to replace that with alertness and help us to see what we should be seeing around us in our lives uh, the way the deceiver works in the world and in our personal sphere, uh, the way wicked people interact with us, our own flesh. Help us to see what we should be looking at and use alertness to discern those things and place ourselves on the right path. Help us not to be taken in by the wiles of our culture, Father softening our stance, forgetting about our adversary, forgetting about what your word says. Instead, help us to know what it says, what it means, and do it. And Father, help us to wait on you. Help us to delight in you so that we can truly be strong with spiritual strength, real strength, and we'll delight in and be fully content in whatever it is you bring our way. And help us to obey your command to love defining it the way that you do. And let it permeate everything we say and everything we think and everything we do. And we pray this in the name of your Son, whom we love and we long to see. Jesus, to him be honor and glory and dominion and praise here in the church and in the world, both now and forever. And all God's people said.